Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode, we highlight the ideas around rethinking the way cities are being built. We discuss the roles of planning, design, technology, and other fields that contribute to improving the urban experience. Hey, everyone. This is your host, Bryant Hughes, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Anna McKay from Portland-based Guerrilla Development. Now it's more like the head and the heart where it's it's time to to use whatever innovation we've got rolling around in, in our brains to, to start making more serious impact socially and, and starting locally with the, with the most pressing issues um, facing Portland, knowing that those are not unique to this cosmopolitan area by any stretch. If you're not familiar with Guerrilla Development, their projects are an eclectic mix of commercial, residential, and mixed-use properties with names like the Fair-Haired Dumbbell, Jolene's First Cousin, and the Atomic Orchard Project. Beyond the projects themselves, Guerrilla is very thoughtful with the values they incorporate into their business. Those values led them to start looking at ROI beyond simply financial returns and using projects as a way to build social capital into their city of Portland. I spoke with Anna about her background, how she found herself working in the real estate space, and the unique way they view ROI on their projects at Gorilla. So without further ado, here's my chat with Anna. Hey, Anna, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So jumping right in here, you know, I wanted to know a little bit about your background before coming to Gorilla and kind of what got you started, you know, in the whole landscape of urban development. Yeah, like a lot of real estate developers and and certainly similar to my colleagues here at Gorilla, I have a uh, varied background stemming primarily from architecture and construction with a little bit of design build education sprinkled in. I have a degree in architecture, worked as an intern architect for many years and transitioned into woodworking and carpentry in my mid-20s, which then led into design-build education, teaching folks without a lot of experience in either field, not only how to design, but how to build their designs and how to bring them to life. And then in the last five years or so, that's transitioned pretty logically into real estate development. It felt like the the third leg of the stool in a way. You have design, you have build, and then you have finance. And if you have a way of or an interest in in bringing all of that together, then real estate development is is a pretty logical next step for those who, like me, like variety and and like to see kind of a soup to nuts experience in creating space. Yeah, huh? That's super interesting. I've never. That's a really interesting way of framing it, kind of like the three legs on a stool analogy. Is that something that you kind of plan for ahead of time? I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of people who are maybe getting into real estate don't think about it that thoughtfully, or maybe they, you know, don't realize that they should get a creative background or that that would be beneficial. Is that something that you kind of planned or was it just an organic process? Uh, Totally organic. Um, I think many of my contemporaries, especially those that perhaps got an undergraduate degree in architecture found themselves entering the job market at a, at a horrible time for entry-level architecture. 2007, 2008 was when I graduated. 
Okay. Um, so I, I feel in some ways that the Great Recession was kind of this thing that that caused a lot of my contemporaries to to become scrappier and right. to hold on to the things that were the most important to them and to really prioritize and to be flexible because the traditional architect's career path was not necessarily available at that time. Yeah, totally. I feel like that that's kind of something that was maybe beneficial across all industries, to be honest, you know, especially after the Great Recession when everyone's trying to figure out their place and, you know, are their careers that they're going after even viable anymore? And, you know, scrappiness definitely helps across all industries, I feel like. I would agree. It's been yeah. an era of disruption to, to right. use a canned term, but <laughs> I know that that has something to do with just kind of market we have emerged into or we were kind of born into as baby professionals. So sure, it was it was tough, but in the long run, I think it's it's going to be kind of the harbinger of shifting bottom line thinking, um, right. which I think is something we might we might get into in a little bit yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as inspirations during your career and things that kind of impacted the work that you're doing, what were some of those early on, either before you got started in development or maybe kind of along that creative path that we were talking about, or I mean, even earlier than that? It's always been people and relationships that have been my biggest inspirations. Hmm. And, you know, whether it be my badass, like female architecture professors who <laughs> were the first women at, let's say, Princeton and the Princeton like graduate school and, and dealt with, with what was tough for them to get through a boys club and right. a misogynistic one at that, which I guess is implied with that term, <laughs> but which taught me a lot of grit and stamina. And you know, beyond that, there are the incredible carpenters and builders I've worked with along the way who have inspired me to think in a problem-solving manner that is not necessarily intrinsic to architectural education or, or education in America in general. Yep. Um, so that's been super inspiring. And then as I as I go on, of course, my my boss here at Gorilla, shout out to Kevin. He is a total novel thinker in this field and pushes all of all of my colleagues and I to challenge challenge the paradigm, which is amazing. And you know, finally, it's the small business owners that we work with, whether they be contractors or our tenants, that make our spaces, you know, come alive and yep. drive us to continue to innovate and to think about their wants and needs in an organic form and function way. So it's all okay. about the people. The people make make everything what it is. Sure. So I'm curious on I guess kind of the the woodworking background that you have as well, the certificate of fine woodworking. Where did that come about? And I guess like how does that impact the work that you're doing doing today? It came about uh, after several years of working my hard fought architectural intern position at a, a firm in Central Oregon, and just not feeling satisfied with the trajectory I appeared to be on, which was 
financially comfortable, but, but not very physical and not a lot of thinking with my hands, which was something I leaned on throughout my childhood, adolescence, and college experience. There seemed to be a disconnect. So I pursued this woodworking certificate and definitely scratched that itch. I'm proud to say that at one point I could rip a three-quarter inch sheet of plywood on a table saw by myself. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't know if I nice. still could, but sure. it, it was interesting. That education gave me not only more of that systems and problem-solving thinking that I was mentioning before, but it also gave me a lot of confidence, which as a female in this field that is dominated by men has has been invaluable. It's It's been extremely helpful. And, and I see echoes of it, not only in that kind of confidence to run job sites and to project manage and to sit at tables with lawyers and bankers, but also just an attention to detail and acknowledgement on how the small things can create something magical, um, yeah. which is very true in woodworking. And it turns out is applicable to building making as well. Yeah, totally. I can definitely see the relationship there between the two and kind of taking some of those, the nice humanistic qualities, I guess, of woodworking and, and, and the craft behind it and really applying that to, you know, the built environment and, and some of the work that you guys are doing. Totally. It's it's kind of the revelation of the the hand of the maker. Um, right. So often is lost throughout any design realm, but sure. it is is the little, it's the magic sauce. So yeah, that's something we all strive to to show at Gorilla. Yeah. Okay. So before we kind of jumped into the woodworking, you were talking about some of the people that you work with. So I'm I'm curious, what what are the personalities that make up the team at Gorilla and and kind of what what makes you guys go? Sure. Well, our company is divided into two arms: project management and asset management. And I have a colleague who is another project manager like myself. And he and I have very similar but different backgrounds in that there is a strong architectural base. And then there is a lot of variety and spice. He's a professional musician. He drove a taxi cab for five years here in Portland. But at the end of the day, he's he's just a, a smart, capable very talented in many arenas person. And that is a total benefit in in what we're able to provide as services to tenants. And basically at every step of the way there, let's say, you know, I need to run my tenant improvement permits through, or I need someone to draw this up for me. We're both able to jump in AutoCAD and make that happen. And also on that side of of the room, the project management side of the room, we have a financial manager who, similar to our asset manager and probably similar to financial accountant type folk everywhere, they're very fastidious, meticulous, attention to detail, more focused on the nuts and bolts, which is a blessing to some of, of the more, I guess, qualitative thinking on the other side of the room. Yep. 
And finally, we have an asset manager who has been inspired by kind of the roll up the cigarettes in the sleeve, like jangling keychain type person that we can remember from sitcoms from the the 70s and 80s. And he is not only a very capable, handy person, but also coming from a background of professional musicianship. He's run his own painting company for several years. So that's kind of the crew, ragtag, yeah. but highly capable. And then all under the the guidance of our fearless leader, who um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with. And Kevin. I would, yeah, Kevin. Yep, yep. And for a taste of kind of the larger ethos of of what Gorilla is functioning under, I would recommend checking out his recent TED talk on yeah, I saw on, that. on the topic of enough. Um, yep. So that's kind of what we're dealing with over here. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and we'll put the uh, we'll put the YouTube link for the TED talk in the show notes um, so that people can check that out. Um, awesome. And so I guess like just as a quick, you don't have to go into de- maybe all the details of, of the talk, but what sort of maybe uh, creative inspiration or motivations or interests do you guys share as a team? Maybe that like Kevin's created or you've all built together or kind of what are those, you know, those ethos, as you just said, of, of the crew that kind of inspires your work or motivates it? Yeah, well... I'd say that most recent and maybe most pressing from a social standpoint is our increasing interest in affordable housing. So that's something that we're all working hard to, again, to use a kind of a canned term, but how to hack affordable housing and how to bring more affordable units with less red tape faster to the market uh, yeah. because it's it's kind of a post election a post recent election shift where initially gorilla was kind of defined by right brain left brain and now it's more like the head and the heart where it's it's time to to use whatever innovation we've got rolling around in in our brains to to start making a more serious impact socially and and starting locally with the the most pressing issues um, facing Portland, knowing that those are not unique to this cosmopolitan area by any stretch. Yeah, absolutely. So I know over the years, you know you guys have have launched many different types of projects. And early on, you know, maybe some of those, or I guess some of the projects early on were really focused on micro restaurants and a way to create spaces and environments where businesses, um, small businesses can thrive. So maybe tell us a little bit about those projects and, you know, how you guys started to view the ROI, you know, more than just financial returns. I think that's kind of what you're also talking about with with some of the housing work that you're doing. Totally. So pre election work, I'll call it. We were really pioneering some of these concepts of carving space differently than what was market and what is kind of still market. And an example of that is 
this concept of micro restaurants, which is becoming a ubiquitous term. But in 2012, when we did the ocean, it was a pretty unique idea. And what it boils down to was before diving deeply into a project, and this I can attribute to kind of an architectural education approach, it was thinking about, okay, well, who is the end user of this space? And not only that, but but what does the space lend itself to? Because it was an adaptive reuse, there was a logical rhythm to the, at that time, what was a little garage off of Sandy Boulevard here in Portland. And we landed on, okay, we want restaurant tenants here. And, you know, the bays happened to fall here and those happened to be around 500, 600 square feet. It's kind of unprecedented to have such a small restaurant. But what if we retained this space primarily for back of house and we target food cart owners and we pitch it to them like you're going to have your own badass kitchen that you design on your own you just have to have x amount of seats within your space to meet code i think it was something like 12 which is pretty easy to do with just like a banquet yeah and what we'll do for you is combine share amenities like indoor and outdoor seating space, a grease trap, a trash room, restrooms, things that were you setting off on your own, you would have to pay for. But but in this scenario, all you have to do is conceptualize the design of your space from an aesthetic standpoint and create the kitchen that you need to, to accomplish your goals. And it was no mistake that we were targeting food cart owners because they're the folk that show up every day and work hard to deliver their soul food to the customer. So we benefited from from the owners operating these spaces. And by clustering them together, we emulate something that is popular here in Portland and and elsewhere, which are food cart pods Mm -hmm. where, you know, me and you could go out to dinner. You want uh, falafel. I want pizza and and we can, you know, you order your falafel and come join me in the pizza restaurant and falafel buddy doesn't bat an eye. It's serving you in another person's space. And that's kind of part of that social experiment of these places that there is buy-in from the purveyors to participate in this larger environment. So uh, we did that at the ocean. It's gone great. Shout out to Han Oak, which is not technically part of the micro restaurants there, but is an evolution of the residential unit that was initially included in the ocean. It's now very much live work. Um, It's a restaurant that won restaurant of the year last year here in Portland. And the chef lives there with his wife and two children. Oh, wow. So it's just this different consideration of what, what our jobs can look like, what our, what our, you know, eating habits can look like, what our spending and and gathering habits can look like. And not being frightened to just kind of go for it. 
and I know I know the zipper was another project that you guys did that was kind of an extension of the ocean project. So did that kind of evolve the concept of the ocean and just let you, you know, test the waters again with these micro restaurants? It did. We kind of beefed up our indoor seating at the zipper. And that's the primary differentiation between the two. There is a robust area for folks to gather in those several months of foul weather in Portland. So it's something that we're continuing, a a model we're continuing to hone. But with that being said, our next micro restaurant project is in the pipeline going into permits in the next couple weeks. Oh, nice. But it it is an evolution that includes that head and heart dichotomy that I was talking about, um, wherein this time around, there is going to be affordable retail in one of the units. Oh, interesting. Which is an internally subsidized by uh, the market rate units around it. Okay. And through uh, what we're calling gentrification, we'll be targeting a native retailer, somebody who likely would have been displaced by this inevitable wave of gentrification Because anecdotal information has shown that if folks can stay on through the initial wave of rising rents, their net income can as much as double in three to five years. So this is that, you know, the often not discussed positive side of gentrification. And it's more a matter of, well, how can we ensure that those native neighborhood folk enjoy the upside because there is one. Right. I'm curious too, if, you know, when you're thinking about some of these ways that you can make a social impact and and you're kind of thinking about the ways that, you know, ROI, how you can think about it in ROI in, in different terms, is that something where you initially started, you know, from a more financial perspective and kind of threw in some you know, some social ROI, or is it something that you kind of reverse engineered from the get-go? I'm kind of thinking if, you know, if someone wants to take an approach like this, which way do they start and kind of how do they start getting their feet wet? I think if I'm being my somewhat cynical self, you need to hit a healthy financial ROI um, to get the investment you need. Sure. I don't think Kevin would have that response. So that's just an illustration okay. of kind of the differences sure. that can help us all arrive to the same ends. So if you're going the Anna McKay route, you want to make sure your project is solid. Uh, yep. What I've, from a financial perspective, because you need the bank loans, you need to be able to pay your contractors, you don't want to value engineer out the magic sauce. Right. Um, so money is important. But with that being said, if you are able, if one is able to demonstrate or allude to some degree of quote unquote social impact, right. I think that at least what we've found, investors are willing to take slightly lower returns. Hmm. So I I can't give you a percentage number per se, but um, there are certain projects of ours that are half market rate returns. But with that being said, the social impact of them is that they work at an 8% preferred return, Hmm. but our investors are opting in to roll 
half of their yearly dividend back into just a cash subsidy for internal lowering of rents for social purposes. So a lot of these projects have a huge social impact or not. I don't know. It's all kind of subjective. In my opinion, I should say they have a, a large social impact, but they are strong financially to begin with. And I hope and pray that we're getting into a world where people smarter than me are starting to create systems of quantifying social impact, like health outcomes or, you know, something that we can, if I had more time, I could probably just crunch the numbers myself, but, you know, rising sale prices and rents in a neighborhood um, because of these projects, raising the value of, of property all around them. But for now, unfortunately, ROI is still a bottom line, um, sure. unless you're saying, oh, but it's lead platinum. Like that's something people get or right. oh, we're, a, we're a B Corp, which is again, something people get, but do they really? It's just kind of like, it's, it's, it's unique. Everyone has to find their own way in this world. Sure. So when, when you're talking about health outcomes before, you know, what systems exist currently for, for helping to start quantify some of those things? Because I know that those are you know, a big, a big driver of, of what you're doing on some of your projects. Yeah. So we are working with NeighborWorks out of Washington, D.C., who okay. have created these incredible survey questions and tools that will allow us specifically in Jolene's first cousin, which is our first homelessness housing project that, that just broke ground a couple weeks ago. It's going to allow us to survey the tenants, specifically the rent burdened and houseless folks that are coming on board for this project at the, you know, before they enter the, the building from a systematic health and financial well being standpoint, thanks yeah. to the NeighborWorks tools. And, mm. you know, every few months or every half of a year, we're going to go back ask them questions. They'll be kind of like an exit interview when they are ready to move on out of the SRO or move into their own space. Or if they decide, you know, this isn't working for me, I'm going to go back to the way I was living before. But it's just, I'm excited to use those tools because it will be our first foray into quantifying how our spaces hopefully make people better. Right, right. And and kind of quantify the ROI beyond the financial return. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess there's a there's a handful of tools, right, that are they're gonna allow you to do that now. What sort of tools are missing, do you think? And and kind of more broadly, you know, how do you how do you start getting people to work on building those tools or even just to start valuing some of those? Well, I would love if I think that. Semantics are really important in the financial world. Um, And one thing that is missing, which sustainability and environmentalism and building has, is a lead type scoring system and grading system. Um, I am very excited to implement the health and financial outcomes tools, but I still, I want like, a sparkling star of social well-being right. and people say oh 
you know, this is a sparkling star building or, you know, this is a ridiculous right. word, but <laughs> something that people could immediately see and, yeah. you know, do their own math about because there are investors out there who are like, I'm only investing in passive house. I'm only investing in lead platinum, whatever those benchmarks are. I am sure that many of those investors are very educated on it. Others might just know that they're doing good for the environment and that's a priority for them. So having some sort of prescriptive path grading system for social impact would be hugely beneficial to quote unquote social impact real estate development. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess thinking about lead, right, and kind of how that has over the years certainly gained traction where at this point it's like almost a de facto like what was kind of the the turning point there where all of a sudden every project needed to be lead certified and you know what do you, how do you think that could apply to um, the social responsibility certification that that we're kind of talking about oh i wish i was more educated on this but sure. um if i'm putting my cynical hat back on it's it's all marketing okay. so whatever lead of course, it's a it's a very important benchmark in the tide of building in, in the entire world. But why it rose to the top when all of the other, you know, living building challenge, passive house are less in the limelight. I honestly, you know, it's they created a huge certification infrastructure and they had instructors and they had lunch and learns and it just like permeated the entire landscape so quickly when it did. I think that, you know, I would be fascinated to see who got rich off of it, honestly, because <laughs> somebody must have. But yeah. that is what made lead the the de facto is that there's just a genius marketing element to it. Um, yeah. Because it's it's not necessarily like, a groundbreaking system. And if you're asking my opinion, I think living building is far more important. And I mean, you can get into these kinds of musings with organic food versus regenerative agriculture. Like there are so many tiers of people doing the best they can. It's just what rises to the top is a little bit of luck and a lot of foresight from some folks in in a room sitting around a table somewhere saying, this is how we're going to get this on the front of everyone's mind the next time they start designing their building. And I think, you know, firms like you guys taking the risks to, you know, do some of that social responsibility with the projects that you're doing, you know, certainly helps kind of pave the way, right? For some of these, like those principles to take a broader or to make a broader impact like across the entire space. Well, consider that an open invite to any of the smarties out there who are (laughs) trying to create the system. Come on down. We've got plenty of case studies. Yeah, totally. So, you know, pulling back the lens a little bit and thinking about, you know, Gorilla taking on new work and kind of the new projects you're looking for. Are you going to always have this this kind of redefined ROI on all the projects that you're doing, or is it is it ones where you kind of pick and choose where you think that the opportunity might be there, or kind of just how are you defining ROI for all of your projects kind of ahead? Informally, a social experiment with a benefit to the community is a goal for every single project. That's pretty mushy, but it just means. In each of our projects, we're going to try to either replicate something that worked for us in the past in terms of creating something good for folk or 
we're going to experiment with with a new idea like internal rent subsidization for for housing or for retail whatever it may be but with that being said there is a handful of projects that are bread and butter as far as gorilla goes okay um, which is to say the design is pretty adventurous and whimsical yep. and and fun but it's kind of a important that it is a market rate building that will fetch market rate rents and be a steady eddy in our portfolio of projects. There is a balance for sure. Um, right. I would say most of our projects have a deep social impact component to them, and some of them just look cool and sure. you know are are serving a different purpose for us. Sure, but it it seems like you know over time. Both of those niches, I guess, for lack of a better word, are kind of becoming the gorilla brand, and it seems like you're doing a pretty good job of you know merging the two together. That's our hope, and yeah. thank you. Yeah. So, how about you know thinking about everything we've been talking about, basically, and and what are the biggest challenges to kind of the social responsibility aspect of the work that you're doing? That's a good question. I think a lot of the biggest challenges are something that we touched on earlier, which is it still needs to work financially. And when you have really aggressive ideas or you're like, oh, I'm going to use Section 8 vouchers to subsidize further rent for non-Section 8 units in a building. Like it's all these, there is a laboratory brewing here. And there is a time commitment to the research that that takes. And there needs to be, somebody on the team that is willing to take that on, make it their own, and basically set a standard that isn't necessarily something you can Google. How do I do this? You know? Right. Um, so it's a time commitment and often it's it's kind of a major financial commitment. And when I say that, I'm thinking specifically of the regulation A offering we did for the fair-haired dumbbell. So we've done a few crowd investing offerings and we will continue to do them. But that initial offering, we raised $1.5 million. Oh wow. And you know, the all in our offering expenses were close to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So Whoa. you could see that the economy there is, right. is sometimes hard to pinpoint. But at the end of the day, we were the first new construction regulation a offering of real estate in the country and, and yeah. we take a lot of pride in that is that an approach that you'll continue going forward on new projects we have pivoted to oregon specific raises just because predominantly the folk that invested were from portland anyway and federally qualifying the offering and offering it in several states was kind of a a cool gesture, but it distilled the mission of what we wanted crowd investing to be down a little bit, or it, it sure. muddied, muddied the the outcome, which was this is about people, local people investing in real estate and benefiting from it, not necessarily, you know, somebody in Massachusetts, you know, big shout out to the Bay State. I love Massachusetts, but you know, I, I don't know that the mission makes, it's not a clean story to say, oh yeah, a couple people 
in Massachusetts are investing in the fair haired dumbbell, which is all about like investing in your neighborhood and they're getting a fat return. So we're focusing more on Oregon only crowd investing opportunities going forward. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know um, we were just talking about the challenges and you mentioned the financials. Well, I think one thing that could potentially help there is the fact that you guys have a lot of the pro formas for your projects listed on your website. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, to hear you talk about that and, you know, both the the reasoning behind that, but then also I'm assuming it's to kind of spread the wealth to some extent and, and tell people about how they can do this. So um, I'm curious to hear his thoughts there. Yeah, we put as much open source information on our website as we can. And you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's for folks like you and potentially some of your listeners who are curious to see how the the sausage is made or the tofu sausage here in Portland is made. Um, <laughs> they can go online and download our pro forma as an Excel spreadsheet. And it's fairly straightforward. And you can yep. just kind of bring it onto your computer and noodle around, play with the the formulas and um, hopefully apply it to your own projects. And a lot of developers balk at that. Um, And I don't honestly, I mean, I I guess I know why, but guerrilla development is the only development I've ever done. So I don't, I don't really like, I've not seen the other side of that coin, like why you would keep it secret. Um, Right. So yeah, open source. And we like to make a lot of our plans architectural plans available to folks as well. Um, Kevin likes to tell the story of a zipper that was built in Perth, Australia, just based on interest we got um, off of our website. So, you know, have at it. There's the thing about this kind of work is that there's no crowding of a market. You know, there's always room for guerrilla developers, little Mm. g little G guerrilla developers to to get after it and, yeah. and do what they do. Yeah, that's so funny. I remember uh, hearing Kevin, I was fortunate enough to go to a talk here in Minneapolis um, and hearing Kevin mention that, you know, someone over in Perth, Australia just downloaded the pro forma and, and basically went to town over there, launched a guerrilla project of their own. Yep. yep. And, and you can too. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I guess second to last question here. So how would you say that developers can start to implement this mindset um, on, into the work that they're doing with regards to the social responsibility and you know thinking about ROI through a different through a different mindset? I think that a lot of it might beg a developer to think about, and this is paraphrasing Kevin's TED talk, but what is enough? Okay. I think to honor the place that you are designing and building is really important. I feel like locals are the most sterling individuals to do this kind of development because you know what your community needs and you have potentially the support of those folks around you. And this kind of development is, that's not a prerequisite, but it feels really good to make it a team effort. And I have to imagine that there's some benefit to the support once buildings are operational because folks are like, you know, that's my buddy, Bryant. He developed that project and I'm going to go check it out. And oh my gosh, I'm going to tell my friends. And, right. and I guess in saying that, it kind of 
strikes me that the scale of this kind of development, I can't imagine giant buildings like maybe hitting these benchmarks, but that's not to say they can't. I just, these are kind of like little jewels nestled within the landscape and maybe starting small is is something to think about. I know that there are groups like out of Boston, Graffito SP, that do amazing things with ground floor spaces of large developments and and otherwise. Uh, so there's like always room for a social consideration. But if 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 one is is embarking on their own, I would say just keep it keep it keep it tiny. Think about what needs to be accomplished and kind of grow the vision from there. It'll it'll happen organically. Sure. Okay. So, so final question here, kind of a general one, but who else in the space should we be paying attention to who's doing, you know, really groundbreaking or inspiring work, or even if it's just some shout outs that you want to do? Sure. Well, um, Graffito SP, that's a, a group out of Boston who I just mentioned. They do amazing ground floor considerations. I really appreciate the work they do. A collaborator of ours, Team Better Block out of Dallas, Texas, Tactical Urbanists, and so much more. We're going to be doing kind of a joint uh, venture with them on Rocket Empire Machine, which is the new gentrification micro-restaurant project we're undertaking. They're going to be involved with some of their pop-up energy to stir up enthusiasm and support from the community. Elizabeth Cristo Ferretti and Supernormal, also out of Boston. Um, nice. She's brilliant and working on ways to use big data for, for small spaces and small developers like us, which I think is, is part and parcel of, of this larger systemization of ROI beyond the financial bottom lines. So yeah, that's... That's who I'm thinking of right now. That's a good crew. Yeah, I like that. Um, So I guess lastly here, maybe you can just tell everyone, um, you know, what you guys are up to and and where we can find you online. Sure. Thanks. We are at GorillaDev.co. We have a pretty badass Instagram account, thanks to our polymath asset (laughs) manager, Herman Jolly. And... We have seven buildings um, under management with another seven either under construction or in for permits. So we're keeping busy over here. Nice. Awesome. Well, Anna, thanks again for your time today. And yeah, it was a great chat. I'm um, so grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and and your audience. Brian, have a great day. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can subscribe through your favorite outlets, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Thanks for joining us.